You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Laborwave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by our listeners through our Patreon. So if you do enjoy the show, please support us by becoming a patron. You'll receive gifts based on your membership tiers and also access to our archive of episodes. If you can't afford to support the show monetarily, you can also support us by following us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and leaving us ratings and reviews as that helps us reach new listeners. This is the second episode in another mini-series on Comrades Read, Kim Moody's rank-and-file strategy. This time we're talking with Tom Wetzel, who takes a syndicalist view on critiquing the rank-and-file strategy for its political limitations. We have an upcoming film review episode where we discuss the movie Lapsus, a dystopian film about the future of work. And we also have an episode coming out with M.K. Lee's on salting as a strategy for union organizing. That and more on Labor Wave. Tom Wetzel, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to go ahead and dive right in for listeners. This is the second episode of our series on Comrades Read, the Rank and File Strategy by Kim Moody. You can go back to the first episode and hear our conversation on what's in the text and Moody's arguments. Our guest today has a critical take on this strategy and its limitations. So Tom, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what is limited about Moody's take on the rank and file strategy? You you talk about how he focuses on trying to create militancy within existing AFL-CIO unions. And why is that not going to work out? He assumes one kind of situation, which is where you have an entrenched AFL-CIO union and the bureaucracy, the paid officials at the top of that union pose a roadblock or problem for the further development of the struggle. And he recognizes that problem posed by the, the, the particularly at the international union level, of of the the full-time paid officials and their staff, and the way in which many American unions since the Second World War have become very top-down and staff-driven. And so his whole focus is on trying to change those unions, right, and to rebuild from within this inherited, heavily bureaucratized kind of labor movement. And that is actually a situation that we're, that a certain proportion of the workers do face. But the problem is that today, only 6.2% of workers in the private sector belong to those unions. They've been basically, the, 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 so many industries have been de-unionized. So you have these, many, you have today, many large workplaces, large companies where there's no union. Right. And, and he, his approach doesn't really address that situation. It's as if he's saying, well, we will have to change the inherited unions so that then they can go out and try and organize the unorganized and, and build new unions. And that was actually the position that 
William Z. Foster took back in the 20s with the Trade Union Educational League, which Moody refers to as the first time his approach was used. So that's a fundamental problem. A fundamental problem is that there's really today a lot of scope, a lot of space, so to speak, for building new industrial unions controlled by workers from the beginning, from, from scratch, right? And so why should we have to um, wait until somehow in the future you've rebuilt you know, or, or somehow changed the inherited unions? And, and I think a problem there is that a lot of these international unions they structurally are never going to be really changed into a worker controlled union. If you look at, if you study carefully the United Auto Workers Union and its history and unions like SEAU and the UFCW, they are so hardened in their bureaucratic control from the top. And, and you have tons of examples of rank and file movements in those unions that were smashed by the bureaucracy. Going back to, say, the 1980s with the UFCW and the, the P9 strike at that time, where there was a very participatory, democratic, militant movement among workers in meatpacking plants that that, un, that union had organized. Well, what happened, and, and, and the companies, that was the beginning of the deunionization of that industry, where wages were being chopped down, the speed up was beginning becoming worse and worse and p9 was the first real fight back against that and it was supported by many uh, meatpacking workers but it was destroyed from the top by the officials of the ufcw placing that union and trusteeship throwing out their elected leaders and dictatorially forcing on the workers acceptance of the employers offer because they were simply interested in protecting the union as an institution, as a source of dues for them. And they were willing to accept any conditions, any wages, as long as the union would be. And this relates to the problem of sort of the, the bureaucratic layer at the top. They tend to identify working class interests with protecting that institution that gives them their position and their income and, and their prestige and so forth. And it ends up you know, becoming a barrier to the advance of the struggle. Now, now, Moody recognizes that problem. He recognizes that the role of the bureaucratic layer, but the fundamental inconsistency in his outlook is he doesn't really have any different, he doesn't have a different vision of how a whole national union can be run. The history of the American Federation of Labor the legacy of that of the American Federation of Labor is we have these international unions, as they're called, that are really forms of democratic centralism, where power is centered in the international executive board and paid officials at the top, and they have legally the right and the power to control and manage the whole union. The local unions legally are just administrative units of the people at the top. And the courts have ruled this so that when unions go in and throw out the leaders that they, you know, if they, if they feel that the, uh, a militant movement at the rank and file level is threatening them and their interests, the courts have said that's, that's perfectly legal for them to do because that's how those unions are structured. And Moody never really deals with that problem. 
at all. And there is, of course, an alternative to that. An alter and, and the P9 strikers in the 1980s um, sort of revived the earlier, like 1920s and 1930s syndicalist view that said we should build the national union organizations as controlled by the workers from the local unions so that the local unions would remain in control of the, of, of the whole national organization because the union would be organized as a kind of horizontal federation of local unions. So the P9 strikers proposed, for example, a new national meatpacking industry union where instead of a, a headquarters with paid officials at the top, they proposed there would be uh, the union be controlled by the local unions through election of delegates to like coordinating councils. So like there'd be a whole coordinating council for the union, but it would be made up of delegates from the local unions. And in a particular company like Hormel or one of the, or Smithfield or one of the other companies, if there's multiple plants, then there would be a chain committee for that company that would also be made up of delegate, delegates from the local unions. And in that way, the local unions themselves would remain in control. And they explicitly rejected the whole power of trusteeship. They said that if a local union disagrees with the national union, they should have the right to disaffiliate and go their own way. So that a national union should be regarded as a federation, a horizontal federation of local unions under the control of workers at the local level. Right. And so, so it's interesting that the PI strikers, from their own experience, came to that conclusion, which had been like the common program in the 20s and 30s of these of the large syndicalist unions in Europe and, and Latin America. Yeah, I want to talk more about that history and also go deeper into your arguments about how to organize the unorganized and the need to do that. But before getting there, there is something that I find just very interesting and like paradoxical about the popularity of Moody's arguments. As you just noted yourself, Moody acknowledges all of these limits to boring from within at the AFL-CIO and how the bureaucracy keeps reproducing itself. And what's interesting to me is that it seems like we're witnessing a resurgence in the popularity of the rank and file strategy. And the people that are finding it inspiring also tend to understand these well-documented limitations of trying to bore from within the AFL-CIO. So I just kind of wonder, like, what's happening? Like, why is this so heavily embraced, even by people that will, out of one side of their mouth, talk about how probably it's not going to work, but then keep pushing forward? Like, what do you think is happening? Well, I think the problem here is that historically, both the democratic socialists or social democrats on the one hand and Leninists on the other have been committed politically to what they call democratic centralist conceptions of organization. That conception of organization is that you have at the top of an organization a paid a uh, group of paid elected officials, and they have the power to manage that organization from the top. So if you accept that concept and you think that's the way organizations like unions or political parties or whatever should be run, you don't really have a critique of the kind of structure, of the kind of top-down structure of the FLCIO-type unions. That is the fundamental contradiction in Moody's theory of the rank and file strategy. 
because he recognizes the importance of participation, of developing, you know, the struggle in the shop and worker control over the union. And he also, you know, but at the same time, he wants to propose that movements, work, rank and file movements, go for power, as they put it, or take over the existing apparatus of the unions. But that just simply is accepting that paid bureaucracy at the top implicitly, right? He doesn't critique that idea, the way in which the AFL-CIO International is organized. And that makes the whole program inconsistent. But I think that the, to answer your question, it's because I think of the, it's the political limitations of a lot that a lot of the groups that support the rank and file strategy come to the to this issue with they bring the, the they accept already the idea of centralizing control of organizations at the top. You know, I mean that's part of Leninist ideology was historically also part of social democratic political organizations as well. So I mean that's it's a political problem basically. Well, and it sounds like it's a political problem of of vision, right? Like there's competing visions of politics and the path forward. And clearly right now, the popularity of groups like the DSA makes one type of political vision more prominent, one that we're more exposed to regularly on social media. You offer a different political vision. And what I really like about your articles in Black Rose is you document some of the history of when these moments of imagination around like what's possible kind of flourished. So can you talk about like the syndicalist view, like what, what it means, what this vision is politically and what periods of time in U.S. history have we seen syndicalism really like more prominent? If you go back to the two biggest periods of working class insurgency in the USA, in the First World War era and in the early 1930s, that's where you can see examples of that kind of grassroots unionism being built. And one of my favorite examples from the 1930s was the Independent Union of All Workers. It was ironically, it was started at the same plant as P9, at the main hormel plant in Austin, Minnesota. And the main architect of that union was a longtime IWW butcher, Frank Ellis. And his conception was that we're going to organize all the workers in town. It's not going to be like siloed, just focusing on meatpacking workers. We're going to organize everybody in the town into a single union and to, to run what was essentially a local labor federation in that town. They had delegates elected from the different sectors. So there would be from the, the retail sector, they organized the, the stores in the downtown. They organized truck drivers and warehouses and they would have sector delegates who would come to a monthly delegate council meeting. And that, that was how they made decisions for that local union, but they built similar local unions in a number of other cities, like in Albert Lee uh, in Minnesota, which is further north, the northern part of Minnesota. And in the cities that they also, like in Dubuque, Iowa, another one, there was no national executive board that ran it. Rather, it was a 
horizontal federation of these local unions that were essentially internal federations of the various sectors in that town. And that's very similar to the way that unions uh, were developed in places like Spain and Portugal, where you would have, like in the CNT in Spain in the 20s and 30s, the dominant organization was the local federation of local unions. And so each, each of these local unions would be built on the basis of in the shop organizing. So you would have elected delegates, you have a delegate council, and you would have periodic assemblies of the workers in each of these workplaces, right? And then they would send delegates to a federation throughout the city, throughout the, that particular region. And then the CNT nationally was just a federation of all those local federations. That's another, another example of that. And, and because it remained very locally focused and controlled, the tendency was to develop struggles of solidarity through general strikes among those different local unions in the different sectors because they direct, directly were connected to each other. See, that one of the problems of the AFL-CIO type unions is each union is sort of siloed. There's no national congress of worker delegates to make up a, decide on a program and direction for the whole labor movement. The AFL-CIO is just an alliance of these top leaders, right, of the different unions. And so there's no cross-union direct connection of the workers. Yeah, I mean, operating inside mainstream labor unions, business unions, I can attest that the inter-union coordination is complete, is minimal to non-existent. It's like such a mess. Yes. And these are unions that fall under the umbrella of the FLCIO. Like the Teamsters don't fall under that, but even but they operate very similarly. I, I want to hear more of your thoughts about how they do try to practice democracy in like AFL-CIO type unions, particularly at that national and international level. You're talking about conventions. So why are conventions basically a farce of democracy? How do they cut out the rank and file? They nominally, they're supposed to be democratic organizations where the local unions elect delegates. But in practice, what happens, first of all, the conventions nowadays don't happen very often, four or five years are infrequent. And so they don't interfere with the management from the top that much. But very often at the conventions, at these conventions, you will have the delegates will actually be paid officers or staff members from local unions or from the international union. And many of the, lo the larger local unions are kind of like fiefdoms, bureaucratic fiefdoms or political machines. And so they will have their people there at the conventions and will be a very powerful force at that convention so that the international union ends up being kind of like uh, just building alliances among the bureaucracies that make up the layers of that of that union and the international and also the conventions may have limitations in terms of what the rank and file can do if you look at the united auto workers union as an example their constitution which was created top down by the AFL in, in 1935 Let's say you're elected as a delegate to a convention, and there's a proposal from the, the, the leadership. You have no right to stand up and make a proposed amendment to that proposal. The Constitution gives delegates no right to introduce proposals from the floor, no right to make amendments from the floor, and all proposals 
have to go through the committees, the convention committees, and the convention committees are appointed from the top of the International Executive Board. So that's how in that union, there really is no uh, rank and file control over those conventions. Also to that point, it's pretty common that union elections are uncontested. Even the mechanisms of democracy that might exist aren't heavily utilized because they're in various ways kind of discouraged. I think, and I think this again attests to all the well-documented case studies that we know make Moody's arguments about the rank and file strategy extremely difficult to realize, if not outright implausible. What I think is interesting that you lay down in your article, The Case for Building New Unions in Black Rose, is that you're not opposed to the rank and file having power over unions. Like that's not the aspect of Moody's arguments that you find out of order. Like you think that, but you're saying what kinds of unions is more important. And I really like, I just want to read this quote from the piece and ask you to expand on it. You write, in certain times and places, the rebel grassroots soul of unionism comes to the fore. In other periods, a paid bureaucratic layer consolidates its positions and looks to restrain the level of conflict in order to ensure the survival of the union as an institution to the hostile terrain of capitalist industry. This contradictory character of unionism is also expressed at times in the conflict between the rank and file of unions and the paid officials at the top. So you're clearly wanting that other expression, the rank and file and rebellious expression to flourish. What are you, the ways that you believe for today we can enable that spirit to come to the fore? The rank and file that actually has power over particular kinds of radical unions. How do you suggest that can start happening? Well, if you look at the particular periods of time when this rebel tendency, as I call it, comes to the fore and becomes really a major force, like in the World War I era or in the early 1930s, there were certain kinds of conditions that sort of enabled that to happen. There was, first of all, there was a previous period of testing and, and developing experiences by ranking our workers who are interested and committed to building unionism, right, over a period of some years. And, but by the time this really takes off, what you see is you've developed a very substantial layer in the unions of what the syndicalists used to call the militant minority, or the active committed workers who have some kind of experience who, who know a little bit about organizing and, and ha- are committed to building the union and bringing in other their co-workers into the union, right? So a lot of them present. So the, pre- so the development of that layer of more and more people who are actively committed to organizing in the workplace, you know how to do that. That's one of our tasks. We have to develop more and more people like that. And also another thing that you will find in those periods is that there's a kind of connection between a period of social turmoil and development of social movements in general that affect the work, the thinking of the working class in general. And therefore, more and more workers, rank and file workers, become more open to the idea of taking on the employer and of building an oppositional organization. 
So that's another one of the features of, of those kinds of periods, you know, and another sort of aspect of those situations is workers learning from other workers. So you'll have strike waves, which are a kind, can be a kind of copycat phenomenon. You see, another, you see a group of workers in another place, they've gone on strike, they've won certain concessions from the employer. You know, so then you are borrow their tactics. You try to build something like that. And when that really takes off and you see lots and lots and lots of strikes going on, then that creates a kind of, it's greater than the individual parts, the for, social force that that creates in society. And that's when the working class is really on a roll and is able to make major gains in the society. And it encourages workers more and more to have confidence in their ability to do that so that class consciousness develops from the success at carrying out disruptive actions that bring production to a halt, which is the way that worker power is really expressed. And those features, they all seem very present today. <laughs> like so many They're of the growing, things. Yes. Absolutely. So what's your assessment right now of uh, the prospects for building these radical independent labor unions? Like, are we seeing it happen or what is it looking like? I don't really, I, I don't know. I haven't yet seen uh, a lot of initiatives towards independent unions. There are some that do exist. Some organizing groups are trying to build independent unions, but mostly most of the organizing of new unions uh, or of unions at workplaces that takes place happens within the framework of the AFL-CIO type union. So you have people who want to organize the union. So their tendency is to go out and contact one of the AFL-CIO type unions. You know, like for example, the current effort at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama, they contacted the retail wholesale and department store union, which is part of the um, UFCW. And if there aren't workers there as organizers who are consciously thinking along the lines of building an independent union that the workers control, and because of the fact that they understand the problems of the AFL-CIO union, if you don't have yet significant numbers of those people, then you're not yet ready to have a, a real movement, I think, of, of independent unionism. So I think more and more rank-and-file organizers need to be have that kind of orientation of trying to build unions that are independent completely of the AFL-CIO bureaucracies and that the workers themselves would remain in control of them. I think, and I think that there's potential for that Precisely because, as you pointed out, there is gradually a growing willingness of workers to fight back, willingness of workers to try to build uh, organizations in our in workplaces where unions don't exist. I mean, you see that you know, see this in various places. You see this in high tech. You see this in in like warehouses. You see this in healthcare in various areas, right? Yeah, but it does sound like the real challenge is figuring out like what should be our approach to the AFL-CIO, like recognizing that their reach is much more extensive than say like the IWW, like that could help foster and instill this idea of like rank and file control and administration of your own affairs 
and you point this out in your article too, is that we shouldn't just completely ignore the AFL-CIO. Moody's arguments leave a lot to be desired. So like, how do we approach the AFL-CIO understanding that it poses a real challenge to syndicalist unions flourishing as well as other forms of like radical independent unions? As I say in that piece that there is a certain section of the economy that is where the AFL-CIO unions are entrenched. And we can't sort of ignore that sector. So we do need to have a kind of strategy for how to deal with that situation. But I think that it there again, it's similar to the perspective of building independent unions. And you, you recognize and understand the problem posed by the concentration of power in the paid official layer in the AFL-CIO union. So that means that in or, if you're in a workplace, where you do have an AFL-CIO union, then your goal there should be to build a worker committee, worker organization, independent of the bureaucracy, and to maintain that independence. And you can intervene in various ways because the unions at the local level have a certain level of democracy. There are certain kinds of meetings where more of the members are present. Like if you're going to have a strike vote, or you're going to have vote on the contract. These are like mass events where large numbers of the of the members of the union show up, which they may not to monthly meetings, regular monthly meetings. And so in those kinds of situations, an independent committee can express its particular orientation, its point of view. You can produce leaflets, you, people can speak their mind, you know, and your committee can have its newsletter or blog or whatever. And be producing uh, information and, and a perspective for the, the rank and file members of that union. And I think that the thing about having an independent committee is that you want to be able to, to the extent possible, have the potential to develop action independently of the bureaucracy of the union. And also in situations where the bureaucracy is going to sell you out, be able to mobilize a significant opposition to defeat that. An example of an organization like that is uh, Railroad Workers United, for example. They have they have members in several different railroad craft unions, like the um, the like Smart, which is the, the a conductors union, and the Brotherhood of Rail of Maintenance Way Employees and the Locomotive Engineers Union, and they basically bird dog what the officials of those unions do. And they've been able to intervene to stop sellout agreements at various points. The main, one of the main issues there is the push of the companies to go to just having one person running a huge train rather than the present two-person crews. And they've been able to defeat those moves, right? And so having an independent organization enables you to mobilize people you know, for action like that. Well, and just for a clarification, that independent committee, that's not the same as having like a caucus, like a left caucus internal to the existing union. It sounds to me like what you're proposing is more like an IWW strategy of dual carding, that you can participate as a union member in the craft union or business union that exists, but you actually want to have an outside committee, like not try to run like a left caucus and a plank to take over the officialdom of that union. Am I right on that? 
Yeah, the, the, the problem with the IWW strategy of dual carding is that it, very often they, they have not actually taken the step of organizing a distinct organization in the workplace, but it becomes just simply, well, I happen to be a member of the IWW, but you're not organizing independently in that workplace. So I think that what this is why I would say that the, the, what is important is building a collective organization, a committee, an association, which actually takes act, engages in activity in that in that workplace, produces their own newsletter, you know, their own literature, their, their leaflets, talks to people, has their own meetings, so that they have the ability to act as an independent force, right, in those workplaces. And can intervene within the union, within the, the AFL-CIO union. In that sense, that is in fact a form of dual carding. That is, is, an, is an example. And at times, there have actually been a few situations where the IWW has actually done that in the past. In the 30s, they did that in the sale of union of the Pacific, the activism independent group to affect the actions of that union. They did that. Um, uh, earlier on in the metal mining industry and other industries. With the main focus on organizing non-unionized workers, as you pointed out, you know, that that's that's the situation realistically. Like 6% union density in the private sector is effectively non-existent, right? So realistically, we should be looking at this as like the masses are non-unionized. So we have a lot of, there's like, a, there's a lot of putty to mold in the particular ways, right? So. What do you think are practical and tangible like steps for workers, you know, on the ground in the shop floors, whatever industries they might be in, to start building these independent unions to avoid the capture of the AFL-CIO and their their imitators? Well, I think that you, of course, the first step is trying to find other people in the workplace and building and organizing. This is always the first step, and then once you have some kind of a resistance grouping, then you can start small steps based on, depending on the amount of support you have. And it's the numbers and cohesion of that grouping, which gives you whatever level of power you have. And so that can grow as you become, you gain uh, greater support. And eventually what you want to get to is having majority support. You want to be able to Get to the point where you could actually carry out a strike and shut the place down. But you have to start, you know, you have to have walk before you can run. You have to start with smaller scale actions at the very beginning. So, like, they, I um, organized a teaching assistance, was one of the organizers of the teaching assistance union in the 70s, the first one at UCLA. And we started out with an organizing community. We had a fairly large organizing community, about 40 people. But to get to the point of having a majority took six years of pursuing grievances, issues, after issues in the various departments. And it was really an action of the employer that enabled the union to build itself to a majority force. The UCLA administration tried to, wanted to eliminate 10% of all positions. And so then the, the union developed a, a major mobilization campaign. They had speak outs on the campus every week where the teaching assistants would be invited to give their own perspectives. They were constantly, they had like every two weeks were producing a, a newsletter and they 
Through this mobilization campaign, they built the union up to where it had an average membership of 75% of the teaching assistants. My department uh, was 90%, but over more than 90%. But at that point, once you have that kind of a majority, then you're in a position to actually shut them down. And so that's when they decided to carry out a strike. And they had a one-week strike. And um, the university, of course, would never negotiate with them. You see in that era was completely intransigent against all unions. But after about a week, the university administration said, oh, well, maybe we found some funds and we won't have to lay off 10% of the, of the TAs. Maybe we can just reduce it by 5%. And then there was a meeting where a lot of the more militant people said, we got to still keep going until they say 10%. They won't lay off anyone. But the, actually, they voted at that point to go back to work. But by the end of the semester, the university had found the money. So they, were, they won. It was a victory. And that's what's interesting also is that it was a victory, even though there was no negotiation, no contract was ever signed. But they won on the issue they fought over. And if you, if you study the strike waves of the World War I era and the 30s, that was not uncommon. Very often, if you have a particularly intransigent employer, what might happen is workers might strike. And then after like a couple of weeks, the employer begins to soften. And then you say, oh, well, maybe we can raise wages by a certain amount. Maybe we can, you know, do other kinds of changes. And eventually, the workers have to make a decision whether the concessions are sufficient to go back to work, right? So it's a question of starting with what you have, with getting together people, forming the organizing committee, and building the in-the-workplace organization and doing smaller scale kinds of actions around whatever the grievances all these people have there. And if, if you're starting from just not even having an organizing committee, then what I recommend usually is spending a lot of time talking to people because you have to find out what is important to people there and you know what are they willing to take action about. What are the issues that are important to them? So an organizing committee, it needs to be able to know what people, what really moves people, right? What people are really interested in, even to build up their resistance to the employer. Well, and something I want to immediately respond to is the length of time it took for y'all to build a majority. You said six years. If for any listeners that that might sound like daunting, I guess I would just forewarn you that that is not a uncommon timeline, even if you are going to try the roots of like traditional business unions. I've seen those campaigns from start to finish take 10 years, even before they get their first contract. So it is a marathon, right? Like you have to dig in for the long grind of organizing. Right. If you, if you think about for just, for example, the famous uh, Memphis sanitation strike of uh, the guy who, uh, the man who was the main organizer, he had been working for something like six or eight years. And he had built an independent union there that at the time of the strike only had 30 members. But because it was such an incredibly uh, damaging thing, two workers were killed by poor equipment uh, of these compacting trucks, right? Trash compacting trucks. That everybody was really angry and suddenly 600 workers walked out. And so now his 30 members, you know, 30 member union is suddenly growing into a huge union, right? A large local union and a major struggle. So that's how things can happen. Things, you know, 
people can be organizing and talking to people. And, you know, as a rank and file organizer, you may think your words are not having any effect. Like in, in when I was building and teaching a city union, which me, it took me several years to organize my department. I thought I would talk to people about the union, I'd talk about issues. And I thought I had no effect. Finally, when the, the our supervisors did something that people viewed as dangerous, people were coming up to me and saying, we have to have a meeting. You know, and I and I called a meeting and 23 of the 24 teaching assistants showed up. So suddenly we had an, an organization with more than 90% of the people in that department from that uh, immediate reaction, what the supervisors were doing. But speaking of all of the talks that I had had over a period of years with various people laid the groundwork for that. That wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have come to me and say, we got to have a meeting. I hadn't been doing that. You know, and that's the thing with organizing. Is that, you, know, you, may not, you may feel that things aren't going anywhere or that you're not really getting, making progress, but you may be laying the groundwork for a better response from people you know, in the future. So if you build it, they will come. I mean, I, what I like about that story too is that uh, I, I've encountered this a lot. The impulse is to call a meeting and just see who shows up and like try to organize people in a mass meeting setting. But clearly the the methodical approaches, you had all these one-on-one conversations prior to the need for a meeting. And then by the time there was a mass interest, you call a meeting and you work with that. So I, I just think that's, I just wanted to say that aloud for listeners. Like that's an organizing lesson right there. Is don't try to substitute meetings for one-on-ones. You got to focus on one worker at a time before you get to that point. But I wanted to bring us to a conclusion here. I really appreciate the conversation. Something that you have been saying throughout has made me kind of wonder this question around the history of these examples. What I see a lot right now are people on, on social media. I got to get off of social media. I have to be honest, because it's I think it's distorting my understanding of like where people are at. But I see a lot of people that are enthusiastic about unions and organizing trying to claim that what we're doing now is new and unique and there's all these new examples and novel experiments with unionization and over and what they're talking about is like minority unionism rank and file committees it's like this is stuff that we've been doing for years for hundreds like at least 100 years it's not longer at least 100 years yes <laughs> well why is that history so submerged under the surface like what happened to that history and how do we bring it back to the fore to like show people that actually the AFL-CIO is not the only type of union there is. There's lots of other expressions of unionism and there's a long and deep history of it. Like, what do you, what do you think are some ways that we can start bringing back this memory around like what's possible and how many times we've actually done this? We, re- we really need to have a much more systematic, popular education oriented to talking about this kind of thing. And, and there do exist things like organizer trainings, which the IWW does and Labor Notes do, where a lot of the lessons of the past are kind of distilled and, and you know, they talk about them. But I think also in terms of publications that are accessible to working class people, you know, I think that in the past there have been periods when there's been just a lot more like local radical worker-oriented publications that were whatever lessons the people who 
were more experienced in those organizations had developed could then be told to other people, to larger numbers of people. So it's a question of the, po the popular education infrastructure, so to speak, you know, the, the centers of training that we don't have. And we have one-off organizer trainings, but like there aren't like social centers that much. Uh, unlike say, for example, in the thirties in Spain, you know, they had every neighborhood in Barcelona and Valencia had their worker storefront schools. And they had classes, workshops in building unions and in what, you know, what kind of union you want to build and as well as social theory about capitalism and so forth and educating working class people on these issues. So that kind of process needs to take place. And, the, and so that means various kinds of publications, various kinds of workshops and kinds of, I don't know, social centers of, of pop, where popular education can take place. Thank you so much for the conversation. Our guest has been Tom Wetzel. On that last note there around popular education, I think your articles and Black Rose are useful for those purposes. Uh, I'm going to include them in our show notes, but it's the case for building new unions and the rank and file strategy of syndicalist view. Check it out on Black Rose. Also, you have a forthcoming book that's going to be published by AK Press called Overcoming Capitalism. So just thank you for contributing to the popular education that you're advocating for. And appreciate you coming on Labor Wave. Thank you.